Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. If you flip to the middle, you're probably pretty close to Isaiah, somewhere, somewhere in there. Uh, the past few weeks, continuing into next Sunday, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, the book of Emmanuel, a series of prophecies that came to God's people during a time when they were under attack, under siege, facing uh, just disaster. And God gave them a promise of deliverance, and he said there would be a sign of that deliverance in a child called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this series of prophecies were given to God's people to help them cling to the promise of God's deliverance. And then it pointed towards the true Emmanuel that we celebrate at Christmas time. This morning we're looking at Isaiah chapter 10, and I would challenge you to uh, find anybody who's preached Isaiah 10 this close to Christmas time, but uh, I find it, I do find it relevant. Uh, I'll be looking at almost the whole chapter, but for the sake of time right now, I'm going to read verses 15 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire. And his Holy One a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy. Both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. And in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You know, those that were here last week noticed that I wasn't, or at least I hope you noticed um, that I wasn't. <laughs> what were you doing here last week? Uh, my family and I were on a vacation, and we, we went to some theme parks. And, and one thing that I realized during my time there is that, that waiting is not what it used to be. I mean, it used to be if you, if you had to wait somewhere, whether at a doctor's office or a theme park or wherever you were waiting, boring. You know, now we have phones to entertain us. Uh, but still, I mean, you go to a theme park, and, and there's still a lot of waiting. And they know that. that. That's part of the experience. Not a good part of the experience, but it's part of it that you expect because you trust there's something worth waiting for. And the, the parks have actually uh, uh, capitalized on this. And, and, you know, you can have apps that'll tell you how long you have to wait for the ride that you want to go on. You know, 10 minutes, 110 minutes, 210 minutes. And, and some parks have, have had the genius idea of recognizing that the higher that number gets, if they put a little link down there that says, would you like to pay another 11 bucks and skip the line? Yes! If I have it in my bank account, yes! Because we don't like to wait. We do. We, we just, we, 
We'll do anything to get out of waiting because waiting is hard. You know there's something at the end, but you're not there yet. As the people of God, we we live in an in-between time, a time of waiting, a time between promise and reality, between the time when God gives his promise and when he keeps and fulfills his promise. And that's a hard place to be. It's the kind of thing that Isaiah is speaking to, to the people of Israel in his day. the, The great superpower, Assyria, was sweeping in. They were rolling into town, destroying and conquering and taking. And God has promised to rescue his people. But it hasn't happened yet. They're in this in-between time when the promise has been given and not yet fulfilled. And we live in those times as well. We wait and we anticipate and we get frustrated and we get tired because God has promised a new creation. God has promised to wipe every tear from our eyes. God has promised to end the sin that is, that is at war with us. But we're not there yet. We're waiting. And when you wait for a long time, it can start to feel like that's all there is. Just ask a kid who's been in line for a ride for 90 minutes, looking at the back of the person in front of them. It can start to feel like that's your entire world. And nothing exists except that. And you're just going to be standing there forever. People of God, we can start to feel that way. We can start to feel like what we see and experience today is, is, is all there is. It's going to last forever. This is how it always will be. But God promises that what we see and experience today, not all of it endures. That word endures is important. It means to last forever. Not everything endures. So God calls us to trust his promises. Trust his promises as we wait for him to fulfill his promises. And to his people through Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 10, one of the first promises he gives to help his people during those in-between times is that earthly power does not endure. Earthly power does not endure. The main question that the Lord is answering here through Isaiah is why is God allowing this evil nation of Assyria and the evil king in charge of the evil nation, why is he allowing them to succeed? Because they are succeeding. And verses 8 through 11 is just the king of Assyria boasting and listing off one after another his conquests, the nations and capitals and indeed the gods that he has conquered as he goes through the land. And he says to the people of God, Judah, Jerusalem, you're next. Syria, Damascus, Samaria, they couldn't stop me. Their gods didn't stop me. And you will be no different. You're next. The king of Assyria marches in and takes every city one by one. And later in the chapter, it sees him listing down the cities of Judah, geographically getting nearer and nearer to the capital. One by one, we even have historical records outside the Bible of of accounts from those in Jerusalem watching the lights go out in the city six miles away, watching the lights go out in the city three miles away, and knowing that the army was near. It's terrifying. Why does God allow victory for the evil king? It's like the enemy today as we look around and can almost hear the enemy laughing at us 
I have the schools. I have businesses. I have the entertainment industry. I have government. I have the financial industry. I have the technology. There's nothing you can do to stop me. Earthly power seems to win the day. It's one of the challenges of life in the in-between times. Sometimes the wrong people win. And for a season, it seems like everything that the world trusts in and the world values, be it money, power, strength, influence, popularity, it seems like that's what is most important. That's what matters most. That's what's going to endure. But God comforts His people with this message. Their power doesn't last. It doesn't endure. Why? Because whatever power they have has been given to them by God. And it was given for a reason. Look at verses 5 through 6. The prophet says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against my people, the people of my wrath I command him. For all its strength and all its power and all its might, Assyria is just an instrument, a tool that God uses to do his work. Pull those verses up again, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, God says. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. Why is Assyria winning? Because God has sent Assyria, has given him power for a reason. Now, the king of Assyria doesn't realize that. In verse 7, he does not so intend. His heart does not so think. The king of Assyria has no idea that he's being used by God to accomplish something. And so he goes on to boast in verse 13. He says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. He thinks he's in control, but God is the one who has given him power for a time. And here's what God says about his boasting in verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Yes, the king has power. Yes, he succeeds for a time. But in the end, he's just a tool, an instrument that God is using. And it makes no more sense for him to boast than it does for a hammer to brag about the table it built. It's just a tool. Where did that power come from? And why was it given? The answer lies with God. When Jesus was on trial for his life, before Pilate, the Roman governor. In John 19, Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? Do do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I'm in control here. I have the power. I decide who lives and who dies. And Jesus replies, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That's the confidence Jesus had in facing Pilate. That whatever power Pilate seemed to have, God gave it to him. God was still in control. So why did God's people need to hear this from Isaiah and why do we need to hear it today? It's because in this in-between time that we live in, when we're waiting for the fullness of God's salvation and victory to be real, we're faced with all sorts of earthly powers. Earthly powers that seem to threaten God's plan and purposes. That seem more effective than God's way 
that seem more popular, more powerful than God's people. And Isaiah cautions us, don't fear those earthly powers and don't trust in them either because they exist for a season and then they're gone. And whatever power they had came from God and whatever they do in the world, it's God who is in control, not them. But there's more because when a kingdom like Assyria would roll into town and they would take over city and village, what would happen in those places? What would happen to their language? What would happen to their currency? What would happen to their worship, to their daily life? You would start to follow and imitate the ones who were in power. And it's no less true today. It's in our nature to look to those who seem to have power and to imitate them and to follow them and to absorb their way of life. Uh, the um, What's her name? Paris Hilton. I forgot it in the first service too. The, uh, the lady, if you don't know who she is, good for you. Uh, you know, famous for being famous. You know, one of those people who like celebrity, tabloids, all sort of things. But uh, a number of years ago, she decided she wanted a, a tiny dog that she would just carry around in her purse. It was just an accessory to her. Sales for those dogs skyrocketed as soon as someone took a picture of her with it because everybody wanted to be like her because she had some sort of perceived power, status. You know, we, we imitate the way that our leaders and celebrities talk. We buy the things they tell us to buy. We value the things they tell us to value. We perceive power and we, we imitate it. But God warns us that Assyria and Rome and Hollywood and Washington and Wall Street, and every other earthly power you can think of, it will not last. It does not endure. First John three, First uh, John two, fifteen through seventeen. The apostle warns us not to love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father; it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Earthly powers do not endure. So don't fear them and don't follow them. That's the first thing we need to know as we live in the in-between times. The next thing, well, you know, it may be true that earthly powers don't endure. They'll someday expire, but that, that might not sit well with us completely. Because sometimes they endure for a very long time. And sometimes the things they do are so evil. And to simply say that we should find comfort in knowing that they, they won't last forever, that might not feel like it's enough. It, it's like coming home and finding that somebody is robbing your house and you respond by saying, go ahead, take everything you want. You're going to leave sooner or later. You know, does that comfort you? Does that bring you peace? The police show up and ask if you want to press charge. No, they left. They didn't endure. They didn't last. No, that's not enough. We want justice to be done, don't we? God gets that. So he not only promises that earthly power does not endure, he also promises and assures us that injustice does not endure. Look at verse 12 regarding Assyria. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. 
After all, this whole prophecy began in verse 5 with woe. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Yes, the Lord was using the king of Assyria, but what he did was wrong. What the king did was wrong, and there will be justice for that. God used this evil king to accomplish his holy will, but that didn't excuse the evil things that the king did. It reminds me of the, uh, the movie A Princess Bride. Beautiful movie, kind of fairy tale. But what sets it up, what frames the story is it's a grandfather in the present day uh, reading the story to, a, to his son who's homesick from, his grandson who's homesick from school. And uh, yeah, as the story goes on, there's a, one of the villains' name is Prince Humperdinck. And at some point in the story, the, the, the young boy interrupts. And so we, we switch from the fantasy world and we go back to the bedroom where the boy is hearing the story. And he wants to ask his grandfather. He just can't wait to hear. He's like, who kills Humperdinck? Who, who gets Humperdinck in the end? And, and the grandfather says, well, nobody. Humperdinck lives. And the, the young man is so frustrated. He says, Grandpa, what kind of story are you telling me? Because he knows it's not a good story if the bad guy gets away with it in the end. Now, he doesn't. Humperdinck lives, but he doesn't live happily ever after. And that's the point. It's not a good story if justice isn't done. We know that. We feel that. Even the youngest of us feel that. We don't like stories where the bad guys win. We want justice to be done. And so for his pride and for his arrogance, for his violence and his destruction, Assyria will be punished Verse 18 and 19, among many others in this chapter, speak to that. The glory of his forest, his forest is the army of the king of Assyria. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. The Lord's saying, look, I'm going to wipe out his army. There's going to be hardly anyone left. There's going to be so few that a little kid would be able to count them and write down the number. God tells his people to find comfort in knowing that the injustice that they see and experience will come to an end and will be judged. The Lord has promised it. He has guaranteed it. Now take note who's getting that message. It's it's not the king of Assyria. This prophecy is not a warning to Assyria. It's a message of comfort to God's people that justice will be done. We need that comfort. We need that assurance. You know, uh, Henry, I think his name is Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow, uh, wrote a poem called Christmas Bells. We've, we've turned it into a Christmas song. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Uh, you know, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. They're old familiar carols play, play. You know, the point is that the songs are declare, the bells are declaring peace on earth, goodwill to men. The problem, and, and this doesn't make it into the most versions of the Christmas song, but one of the verses of the, of the poem speaks of the canons in the South. The poet, he's, he, despite hearing the bells proclaiming peace on earth, he hears the, the cannons in the south firing during the Civil War. And so then we have this verse that we sing often. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. During these in-between times, it feels like the wrong prevails. 
It feels like justice is conquered. It feels like there's no consequences for evil in our homes, in our schools, in our streets, and throughout the world. Justice is weakened and the wrong prevails. When something isn't fair, we want it to be punished right away, don't we? We want to see justice done right away. And when it's not, it lessens our motivation to do the right thing, doesn't it? When, when, when crimes go unpunished, when unfairness is tolerated in the home, when my, when my sibling runs and gets a cookie between meals and isn't punished for it, why should I keep my hand out of the cookie jar? Right? This is what the psalmist was dealing with in Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. There's a, a play about waiting by the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett. It's called Waiting for Godot. And it's an absurdist. It's called absurdist because it seems to have, make no sense. Um, I would agree. Uh, but the premise is you, you see these two men just talking as they're waiting. They were told to come here and wait to meet somebody named Godot. And the first act ends with a messenger arriving saying, He's not coming today. End of act one. Act two starts, same two characters, talking, waiting again for Godot, and they carry on with their nonsense conversations, and at the very end of the play, messenger comes up, I'm sorry, he's not coming today. End of the play. All this buildup, all this waiting, all this anticipation, who is Godot? Why did he tell us to meet? What are we going to do when he gets here? What's going on? There's no point to it because there's nothing worth waiting for. It's like a child, or a grown-up too, <laughs> waiting in line at an amusement park, and you wait two hours, and you get to the gate, and they say, sorry, there's no ride here, actually. I don't know why you were waiting in line in the first place. How frustrating would that be? And as we look at the prosperity of the wicked, as the psalmist looks at the prosperity of the wicked and says, I know God's good, but I'm seeing these rich people getting away with whatever they want and these evil, evil people thinking they can do anything and I'm trying to figure it out and it doesn't make sense to me. Seems like an awful lot of waiting with no payoff. Have your feet almost stumbled? Have you nearly slipped? Have you grown frustrated by the prosperity of the wicked? When you try to understand it, is it a wearisome task? Well, you felt the same way that the psalmist did. And you need to resolve it in the same way that the psalmist does. He says, until I went into the sanctuary, and then I discerned their end. When injustice and wrongness and the messed up things in the world get at you and get to be too much to understand, our reaction is not to attack. Our reaction is not to retreat and hide and bury our heads in the sand. Our reaction is not to try to figure it out and see if we can understand exactly what it all means. Our reaction is to go into the sanctuary of God, to understand His Word and His ways and His character, 
to lean into his promises and you will see that the story doesn't end where you see it ending. It doesn't end with what we see now. It ends with this, Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what we're waiting for. And that is a guaranteed ending. Injustice does not endure. Every cause of evil and pain and frustration is removed God will punish evil, and that's good news. Kind of. You know, there's a degree to which we have to see that that's bad news first. That God will punish evil and injustice should terrify you. Because God had sent Assyria as the rod of his wrath against a godless people, but who were the godless people? It was Judah, it was Jerusalem, it was his nation the people that claimed to be his. They had rejected God and his ways. They had disobeyed him and were worshiping other powers. If God's going to punish evil and we are anything short of perfect before him, then the justice of God is a terror. And so God gives one more promise during the in-between time. Earthly power does not endure. Injustice does not endure, but the mercy of the Lord. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. Though his people had left him and turned away and rejected him, God wasn't finished with them. I mean, what's amazing is that they weren't even looking to God for help. They weren't seeking him. They weren't coming to Isaiah saying, Isaiah, please speak to the Lord for us and tell us what he says. No. They were rejecting God and his word. We saw a few weeks ago when Isaiah came to the king to deliver a message of hope, the king didn't even want anything to do with it. They weren't even seeking God's help, and yet he promises to deliver them. How amazing is that? That's mercy. Look at verse 20 and 21. God promises a remnant. In that day, the remnant of Israel... And the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty of God. A remnant is a small amount that's preserved, that's left over, after much has been lost. God says, yes, I'm punishing my people. I'm sending Assyria to punish them for their disobedience. Verse 22. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. And this wasn't a, uh, an unfair judgment. The destruction of God's people was done in righteousness because they had forsaken their God. The whole nation had turned away and deserved to be punished, and yet God doesn't always treat us as we deserve. So in mercy, he leaves a remnant. A group of people who, instead of being destroyed, receive mercy. And are saved. Why? Is it because they're better than the rest? Did God look over the land and say, well, most of the nation's pretty bad, but these are the good ones. These are the good eggs. So I'm going to protect them. It's not what he does. 
Does our hope of salvation rest on the fact that we are better than other people? That we are moral, whereas other people are immoral? We have true doctrine. They have false doctrine. Does God save the holy, moral, well-behaved? No, that's not mercy. That's reward. Mercy is when God does not give us the punishment we deserve. Verse 26. The Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. God points to two times that he delivered his people even though they didn't deserve it. Midian was a nation that was attacking Israel in the day of the judges. When Israel was in this cycle of constant disobedience to God and perpetual chasing after idols, and yet when Midian, the Midian, Midianite army came in and overwhelmed them, God in mercy raised up deliverance and defeated Midian and freed his people even though they didn't deserve it. And in Egypt, God raised up deliverance over Pharaoh. Not because his people deserved it. Not because they'd gotten their act together and were doing everything right. But to show, and he says this again and again and again in Scripture, why did God defeat Pharaoh? Why did God conquer Egypt? Why did God deliver his people? To show how powerful he was and that he was faithful to his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The mercy of God endures because it's not about you. If God's mercy was tied to how well you and I do, His mercy would have ended a long time ago. The mercy of God is about Him, about how good He is, about how faithful He is to His promises in showing mercy. God honors Himself and sets you up to be merciful to others to treat them the way you've been treated by God. And so in Isaiah's day, he promises this, verse 17. The light of Israel will become a fire and his Holy One a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. How did God intend to deliver his people? Did he say, though Assyria is strong, you will ride out on your horses and be mightier and you will defeat them? No. God says, I'm going to do it. My flame will burn bright. My Holy One will win the victory in a moment, in a day. You're going to see it happen. And so in Isaiah 37, we see that when Assyria was finally surrounding Jerusalem with the intention of destroying it, here's what happened. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. In a single moment, God himself acted to deliver his people. Do you see where that's going? Have I made it too obvious? Do you see the connection? Do you see Jesus in this story? I hope you do. Because that single mighty act of delivering his people that God promised pointed to another greater single act that God himself did when his people did not deserve it, and yet he delivered them. In a single moment, God destroyed the power of sin and the reign of death over his people. And so for you and me today, living in the in-between times, when the powers of earth and the injustices of the world seem to win the day, and when there seems to be little hope that there's anything that you or I could do about it, God calls his people to be at peace. We live in between the promise and the fulfillment, in between the beginning of his victory and the fullness of it, 
And if there's one thing that we can be sure will last, it's the mercy of God. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. It carries us not just through this in-between time of knowing and seeing that God's not going to treat us the way we deserve to be treated, but into eternity, He will continue to be merciful. We sang earlier, O love that will not let me go. No matter what happens, the love of God endures and will not let you go. It's not on the screen, but there's a verse that reminds me of in John 10 where Jesus speaks of of how the Father has given all of His children into His hands. He holds them in His hands and He says, and no one can take them out of my hand. It's a love that will not let us go. There's a verse in that song that we sang. I trace the rainbow through the rain, the rainbow reminding us of the promise of God to not destroy. I trace the rainbow through the rain, even in the midst of rain, I, I still cling to the promise of God that is visible in the midst of the rain. And as I do so, I find that the promise is not in vain. What's the promise? You heard it in the call to worship this morning. That weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. That's the love that will not let us go. That's the mercy of God that endures forever. Waiting is hard. We live in the in-between times, but we must wait like a child waits for Christmas, knowing there's something worth waiting for. Maybe not knowing exactly what it is, but it's worth waiting for. That keeps us waiting. That keeps us motivated. That keeps us from being discouraged. That's the promise to God's people, that the wait is worth it. In Isaiah's day, it was waiting for deliverance from Assyria and holding on to the promise of Emmanuel, the child that would be born, and before that child was old enough to know good from evil, Assyria would be, would be no more. Centuries later, in the centuries that followed, it was God's people waiting for the Messiah to come, the one who would deliver and rescue God's people, saving them from oppression and sin. And today, as we wait, along with our brothers and our sisters around the world, we wait for Christ to return in victory, to bring to completion all that He's promised that we will see. And the promise given to us in this in-between time of Waiting is that it will most certainly be worth it. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. What, is the, what are the sufferings of our present time? Fragile bodies, sickness, disease, faithless neighbors, divided families, Godless leaders, whatever it is, whatever suffering we believe we are enduring in this present time, they don't compare. Not even a little bit, they don't compare to what God has in store. And so as we're going to sing in a moment, because of those promises, whatever, whatever my lot, whatever I have to endure, whatever God calls me to experience in this in-between time, He has taught me to say, it's well. It is well. It is well with my soul. In that hope, pray with me. Our gracious God, you know the frustration we experience. You took on human flesh and dwelt among us 
and felt the pains we feel and the weariness we feel and the frustration we feel. And so we can pray with confidence, knowing we pray to one who not only understands, but who also sees the end from the beginning and has ordained all things according to his perfect plan. And what you have promised, you will surely bring about. You showed that to us in sending a Savior whose birth we celebrate during this season. A reminder that all that you have promised, you will surely do. And so we wait for your return. We wait with hope and with joy and with faithfulness. We pray these things in the name of the one who guarantees every word of the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.